Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Battle for the Ring. Behind the Scenes. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. This episode, we're going to be exploring a few more interviews that I did from Battle for the Ring. But before we get into that, uh, we have a phenomenon here in uh, Montana, and I'm sure other places as well. Uh, you'll be able to understand what I'm saying, but uh, we have what we call a false spring or a Chinook. And what this is, is you get unseasonably warm weather in the middle of winter. And one of the effects of this is the false hope that it brings of the end of winter. For us, it generally happens in the middle of January-ish, sometimes continuing into February. And what this does, of course, is it kind of thaws things out, makes things think that it's probably going to be spring, out-of-staters especially, sit there and they're like, ah, oh, maybe the spring is finally is finally here, and you shake your head as a, a person who spent three decades here and say, no, <laughs> no, it isn't. But I think about how much frustration that would have brought uh, and how much more difficulty that would have brought to an army because they might start you know, packing things up, like transitioning away from winter stuff and preparing to move more into some, some warmer weather gear and then have to bring out the cold weather gear or have to deal with the, the mud and the slush all mixing together because you have hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, which creates this like awful sludge that just collects absolutely everywhere. And so the effects of this false spring are, oh, and also like potholes galore. Not that that would have affected people, you know, moving back and forth in ancient times with like horses or, or whatnot, but in terms of modern driving, it's quite an issue. So these, these false springs, it just got me thinking about, yeah, about how awful that would be to have to deal with it when on campaign. Uh, about the other, only other thing that I got to top us off before we get into these outstanding interviews is to bring attention again to our electronic media, which I am always bad at maintaining, but <laughs> I've gotten a little bit better. The Facebook page in particular, I've gotten, uh, I've subscribed to a few other accounts, and so I'm reposting a lot of their funny memes that I, that I find entertaining, so there's a bunch of Bell stuff on there, there's Warhammer stuff, history stuff, um... Mostly, of course, wargaming and, and war military history related, but yeah, it's I find it to be humorous stuff, and I hope you do too, so check that out if you're so inclined. Our Instagram continues to be somewhat quiet on account of the fact that coming up with new material can be challenging for somebody who is not prone to this particular form of media. Uh, so, yeah, I, I know it comes and goes for those of you who are on there. Sometimes there's stuff being posted, sometimes there's not stuff being posted. Um, I, I will be honest with you, and I can't necessarily promise consistency, but <laughs> I appreciate you being there and following. 
And then for our YouTube channel, which has been Gathering Dust, uh, we are planning on beginning to release the episodes on there as well. Because it's been brought to my attention that there's a whole lot of folks that listen to podcasts, even on YouTube. So uh, the idea of putting those on there would be pretty okay too. So i am I'm been planning to do that for a while, and I continue to plan to do so. We're going to follow through eventually. Um, and then there's probably going to be some special content on there too. Some interviews or some GoPro footage from events. Um, you know, sped up stuff from from wargaming, from like Warhammer and stuff. So, yeah, look for that. Um, hoping to get more on that here in the new year. But uh, the interviews you're about to hear are actually, I think, very important ones to hear. Because so often when we're studying military science, military history, we focus on battles and on the great maneuvers and conquests of these generals. But one of the things we don't typically concentrate on or learn as much about as we probably should is the logistical side of things. You know, people who get things where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there. People who are in charge of getting the camp set up and making sure that it's run smoothly and everything's not just a massive traffic jam. What about the transportation and the supply of vittles? Making sure that people are fed, making sure that people are clothed. You know, only, I would say only about 5% of any military activity is actually battle itself, is actually any sort of, you know, actual, like, fighting thing, what, what Clausewitz would justify as the art of war, right? The things that fall into war. But so many other things contribute to it, don't they? I mean, it, you know, it's just massive, the amount of, of effort that goes into pulling off a military endeavor, much less pulling off an event. Or, or pulling, And again, we're not necessarily dealing with thousands of people, but we are still dealing with large numbers of people who need to be housed, who need to be fed, who need to be entertained. Sorry, that's my heater in the background. I'm not out in my shed right now. It is very cold out there. So the office is uh, abandoned and I'm inside. I'm sure Cassius will be by to say hello. Uh, he has run by a couple of times and been uncharacteristically silent. So I apologize for that. But so we're going to hear from three different people in this episode. The first one is going to be from Anastasia. And Sir Anastasia has been running Battle for the Ring since its very beginning. She's a mover and a shaker down there in Southern California. Um, and so I find that her perspective has been very useful because we talk quite a bit about what it's like to grow an event from something small, from something that's local, to something that's regional, to something that's national. And the effort that goes into that, the effort that goes into maintaining that. So I th she, she was extremely forthcoming with some exceptionally good information. We're also going to hear from my good friend Sarka and speak to her about the challenges of running a kitchen and making sure that everything is prepared and presented when it is supposed to be, and also something that is nutritious, something that is not going to destroy a fighter like a, a lot of fried foods. Now, of course, if you're younger, in your teens or in your early 20s, you'll be saying, oh, I can have fried food and fight, that's no problem. You will learn, <laughs> you, you will join us in the old people club at some point, but. And so, so having to be able to put out that, put out some quality stuff, that's also incredibly important and something that is uh, a worthwhile thing to discuss. The third interview is a matter of perspective. So we have these first two ones, the one from an event coordinator and the one from somebody who has organized a kitchen for a while. Both of these two seasoned veterans, both of these two individuals who have been around and to whom a event is still a joyful place to be, but is not a novel place to be, it's not new, 
But the last interview is uh, actually two of my former students, and I was very uh, glad to have them both on. It was wonderful that they were both able to make it to the event. But this was their very first event. And so not only were they going to observe it with the fresh eyes of a noob, but they got to experience a whole lot of new. As we were talking about, there's a, a playful nickname for this Battle for the Rain, Battle for the Rain, because it was extremely rainy. And... Um, uh, presented unique challenges and situations. Now, both of both of these young men were extremely good-hearted, and they were doing their best to have a good time. They were good spirits, good attitudes and moods. They were an inspiration even to us veterans for the endurance of spirit that one can express and should express. But to have their perspective, to talk to them about uh, that first time, these these new experiences with fresh eyes that you or I might not have because we've been doing this for a long time. So, without further ado, let's get into the first of these interviews and talk with Sir Anastasia. With me right now is Sir Anastasia, who is one of the chief, probably the chief mind before, uh, behind Battle for the Ring. Sir Anna, welcome, thank you for coming to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's uh, first talk about your, your fighting pedigree a little bit. What, what uh, makes Sir Anastasia the background here? Yeah, so I started fighting in 2001 um, in a little realm called Chamonix in Grinnell, Iowa. That's where I went to college. And uh, I've been a part of a few realms. I started one at UC Irvine, which is called Onduro. And that's where I'm, I'm currently involved. And uh, I belong to a unit called Wardens. Um, I guess we're a bunch of tryhards, sort of. I'm kind of like the old fat grandma warden, but we're still a bunch of. Oh, I suppose I'm supposed to say that. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So we're we're a bunch of tryhards. Sorry for uh, messing up on that early on. <laughs> Try to do better. Um, and um, yeah, I've been running. I founded Battle for the Ring, um, which is one of the largest events in the West Coast. And um, I've been fighting since 2001. So it's been a fun adventure. Uh, it's been many years of doing this. This is our 15th event. And um, yeah, we've had a great time with it. So 15 times. Have you been the person who is in charge of this 15 times? Yes, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> well, then I think that it's a good thing that I've decided to talk to you about this because I feel like one of the things that is not talked about enough when we consider military history or science is the logistical side of things. And all of the stuff that we all enjoy, the fighting fields, the tournaments, anything along those lines, none of it would really be possible without logistics. Persons like yourself who are uh, pulling up the supply train and setting up the army marches on its stomach and, and all that matter. So in those 15 years, what would you say perhaps is the most challenging portion of this uh, job? So this event is very unique, I think, in some ways, and especially events that are from Belagarth Medieval Combat Society. A lot of those events are completely community-run and 100% volunteer-run. Um, a lot of people don't realize I pay. My husband, who's also a co-founder of this event, we pay to attend this event just like everyone else. Sure. sure. Uh, we pre-register, so we also get the discount with sure. all the other pre-registration uh, uh, sign-ins. Um, silly not to. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, but otherwise, yeah, we, we pay the fee. And everybody who, who works the event also um, is, is basically paying to be here. Uh, when you coordinate a really large team of people, and you know, for this event, uh, you know, we were still recovering after COVID. Before COVID, we almost had up to 800 people. 
So this year we have, we're definitely over 500, which is great. We're def we're recovering and I'm really happy about that. It's so exciting to see everyone from far away, to see people from all across the country, see people internationally that you haven't seen in years. But, um, you know, it takes a really large number of people uh, to run something like this, uh, putting tents on the ground, um, setting up all of the organization, the schedules, um, organizing teachers for classes, organizing vendors, getting permits from the city, getting permits from the county, contracts that you have to negotiate. Um, and so it can be quite a bit um, that, we, that we work on. And so I have a, a staff team of about 50 people. And I work on recruiting them for the next year, let's say 2024, right now in 2023. I'm, I'm begging people who we find have talent and who can do certain jobs. I'm, I'm asking them, hey, would you want to join in on this madness one more time? <laughs> and people are really generous with their time. So I think one of the most important things to remember when it takes so much to build something like this is that as an event coordinator, you, you will literally almost die trying to put this together. You know, there's times where I don't get to go to the bathroom and I've kind of damaged like some of my organs and stuff. Um, I don't get to eat and I've fallen down um, just because I can be so busy. And even so, even though you're, you're dying almost and you're desperate for help, you're not entitled to anyone's time. Mm. Now, it is your responsibility to communicate to the entire community that this is made by the community. It's not made by a bunch of professionals who run events. Sure. It's made by us. We're the ones who put it together. And so you have to try to find a way culturally to create this world where giving back is just part of being a participant. Mm. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. And so you, you would find that cultivating that, making sure that you have people that are on board with that vision, because uh, what it sounds like is what it should sound like when we're dealing with any sort of organization like this, which is delegation. Trying to do all of this completely by yourself, even though you do shoulder the majority of it, from what I can tell, would be madness <laughs> and, and entirely too much, I imagine. It's, especially all the different skills. You can't be 90 different places at once when we're dealing with like the event as a whole. So a delegation is important. When you're selecting individuals for these positions, are there any other things that you look for beyond the obviously with the fact that they're going to show up and that they have some sort of uh, ability, some sort of uh, expertise with it? Are there anything else uh, that you look for within these particular people? I think that one of the reasons why I'm so blessed to have as much help as I have, um, because few events do run with a staff as large as what I have, is that I have a rule where I try not to turn anyone away if they offer me their help. And so there are many people who want to participate, they want to help out. They maybe don't have a lot of a leadership experience yet. They might be very new to the sport. They have the spirit of giving back, but they don't necessarily have the full set of skills and, and the toolkit. You know, for those people, you can have them shadow other people um, and start to pick up those, that tool set so that they can be of use to you later. And it is very important to do that. You know, I've run this event for 15 years. I've had site coordinators that I've had for, you know, maybe five years. I've had people who run the main field, the organize the fighting, and I've had them for seven years. But there's nobody really other than myself, my husband, and you know, a couple people like Sir Yuri, 
there aren't as many people who've been here for all 15 years. Sure. And so you have to always be looking for that next generation of where you can recruit talent. Mm. And half of that is building skill sets and finding those natural talents, keep you know paying attention to what people can do and whether they can succeed on a task. And then the other half of that is realizing how you can use anyone if anyone volunteers for you. One of the things that I really like that I do is I try to have what I call five minute tasks. A lot of people are afraid to volunteer big chunks of time. You know, they think it eats into their fighting or it eats into their participation and so they can be wary. So if as an event coordinator, you can come up with a way of dividing up some little chores like running things to certain locations. Um, like I'll have people take toilet paper to restock portageons. I'll have people take a signboard to the main fighting field. Um, just little things like that that just take a few minutes of their time, but keep me from walking 14 miles in a day. Sure. Um, it can really kind of spare the rest of, uh, of other people. You have to be a little organized. You have to kind of think outside the box, like what is something that someone can do in about five minutes that you're pretty sure they'll be able to accomplish um, and not mess it up. Right. Um, but that's what we kind of work on to try to do that. And this year we even tried to come up with a list. We didn't really get, we didn't get to it like we hoped, but we wanted to make a, an accessible task list for people who maybe can't lift. So maybe they have like a, a bad back, um, maybe they have a medical condition, but something that something, somebody could do to help that doesn't involve like a lot of physicality um, so that we can even make volunteering more accessible to everyone in the, the sport. Well, that's outstanding because I know a lot of people, they imagine volunteering, they imagine fairly physical labor of some sort or another. But the idea that there can be things beyond just troll that somebody can do uh, to be able to help out, again, that, that does make it more accessible. For like you said, people who, who might want to in the future. I imagine though, that Battle for the Ring did not start off in the triple digits. No. They probably started off far smaller at one point and has grown bigger with time. Beyond the obvious complications that come with it, are there any things that like sprang up that are like not just more present, but they're unique to a larger event than as to a small one? Having seen it grown up, what problems do you see with like the big ones? Yeah, so it's funny. Um, we, we, did, we did hit about 100 our first event because I lied to every single person that I met. And that's why I'm saying this because I think it'll make for, for good entertainment. I lied to every single person and I said, hey, you should come to this event. There's going to be a hundred people there. And I said that to as many people as I could find the first year. And I went to every LARP group and every Belagarth realm and every Dagger Here realm and every, any Amtgar group, anything I could find, the, no matter what it was, I would come there and I would say that exact thing. And yeah, they came. <laughs> Um, but there's a lot of little lies that I'll tell, some selfish lies to get people to come out. Um, I'm not trying to be wicked about it. I think that this builds community. Sure. I think it's the bridges and the connections that we make with each other that um, keep people participating in battle games and LARPing. Um, and I think it's really good for our souls. I think it's good medicine. Um, so yeah, sometimes I'll lie, little lies like that. Uh, otherwise I try to be pretty honest most of the time. <laughs> but yeah, it worked out for me. Um, for an event that hits 500 in the state of California, in the county that we're in, um, some of the logistical challenges are uh, this event is too large uh, to just be run um, as you know, a regular party private event. Sure. Um, I need to get a contract with the county of, um, that we're in for the regional parks department. 
that negotiation will probably start in February. I have to get, I have to apply for um, special event permits with the city of Chino, California, uh, who've been very good to us over all these years. All of our vendors have to be permitted. Um, some years we've had fire inspection services. They just recently changed the law, so they didn't have to come out this year, which is great. Um, but there's a whole packet that comes with making sure how people set up their tents, where fire extinguishers are. Um, I have to send um, plans and reports to the city of Chino police department and fire department so that we, everybody knows what the traffic plan is, if this event is going to impact city roads, um, how we deal with um, issues that come up so they have phone numbers of our top security people that we have that are more permanent uh, volunteers. So uh, yeah, it's a lot. I have a giant binder of like, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 pages of papers that are, you know, permits applications for things, getting insurance, insurance applications, um, just uh, dump, we have, we're contractually obligated to get insurance, dumpsters, and certain numbers of porta johns including um, ADA units and sinks, and there's just a lot that kind of goes into it, and kind of double checking that you've, you know, done your best to follow everything. See, that's a level of complication that most people wouldn't even think about. There's, of course, the organizing people, trying to make sure that people are showing up, but there's all that legal stuff with these larger ones that isn't necessarily apparent to folks. Well, they just show up and they think that maybe there was a handshake and they're like, yeah, you can use the land, it'll be fine, <laughs> when that's obviously not the case. Yeah, we work on it year round, uh, and it's, it's, I would say this, it's going to be very stressful for me personally, you know, you're always worried, like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that I wasn't greenlit to run the event. They sent me an email the day, the day before we were picking up the U-Haul to grab everything. They said, oh, and by the way, your event is approved. And I was like, I didn't realize that I wasn't approved up, like till, till 24 hours before it started, you know, because you're, you're, people are flying here. They're, they're taking trains. They're driving from, you know, states away. And you're like, oh, it's nice to know it could have all been tossed out a window on the whims of some city official. but. No, it, it is, for anybody who is going to think of trying to do it, it, it sounds very, very intimidating. But truthfully, you know, our partners in the Parks Department and in the city, they want to see these events happen too. They, if you try to be a good steward of their resources, if you show them that you care and that you're passionate about um, doing something good for the community, they want to do that too. That's their mission too. And so if you're polite, if you're professional, and they can see that that's where you're coming from, they'll help you out. They really will. And so it is intimidating. I probably lose nights of sleep. I wake up puking the first couple days of the event. I'm always so nervous. Um, but uh, it's worth it. And, you know, everybody wants it to happen. Even if you're worried it's all going to kind of blow up. Most of the time it doesn't blow up. I, every time I've come together, or every time I've come down, it seems very put together. Well, thank you. It seems very regimented. I come and I'm like, well, this is a very, very well-run event. And half the time when I comment on that, people are like, oh, no, behind the scenes, we're all flying by the seat of our pants, just like all over the place. It's a bit of a, it's, there's always a plan, of course. There's always a plan going in. But things change. It's raining right now. No events like rain. Um, but, you know, there has to be stuff that we, we do because we get rain. Right. Um, and so you can make the best plan, and attendees will show you where that plan is weak every year. Well, we have said many times on the show, uh, on the bat retaining to the battlefield, but also definitely here, that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. 
I like that a lot, and it applies to event coordination as well, absolutely. Well, one of the things I saw, apart from just the challenges that you're facing in general, there's always going to be things that are coming after, no matter what efforts you're putting forward, no matter <clears throat> how open and efficient everything that you are, are being, there can often be critiques, criticism, uh, downright complaints. Uh, even before we just started this interview, you were uh, talking to you, two young men, and you were speaking, and they were speaking very nicely, very nicely, but they had some fairly acute critiques of the way that tournaments are run, and kind of even challenging the way that Belagarth cult culture functions at night. And you were fielding those questions with the grace and aplomb that could only have been practiced, because I was sitting there like a little twitch, a little twitch right here was starting to go, and I was like, <laughs> I would have found a reason to get out of the conversation, but you just kept, you kept almost soothing these guys. And they went around, away feeling placated. And that was awesome. And I'm assuming that that is, that is not an isolated event. I'm fairly certain that that is probably a, a part of this. That no matter how well you do, there's going to be somebody who has something that they need to say about it. Yeah, and you know, they were actually, I thought, they, they apologized multiple times. And, and I told them, look, you know, you were, they were having a private conversation. And I, I just happened to be two feet away from them and walking by. And, I, and I, they were talking about the event organization. And, you know, that's like... I don't know, it's like the Batman signal for me, you know, I was called in. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think it's important to remember people are going to vent. Um, it is tough to have a thick skin, um, especially when you want to do really well and you want to do something really good for the community. You have to realize that people speak out of frustration. You never know what's been going on with them. It, they could be frustrated about a million things and they could be complaining about tournaments. You know. At the end of the day, when you run an event, the reality is you will not be able to make everyone maximally happy. And so what you are trying to do is this sort of very careful balance of, in, of balancing the interests of all the attendees. There are attendees who only care about sword fighting, only care about tournaments, only care about arts and crafts, only care about teaching only care about social events, only care about partying, only care about getting extremely inebriated, <laughs> falling into fire pits or holes, probably both at the same time, and then, um, you know, cleaning themselves up afterwards or having us clean them up afterwards. Which becomes exponentially larger and larger and larger and larger and larger and larger than the event itself gets. Exactly. And people are going to feel very passionate about this. These are huge milestones in people's lives a lot of the time. People are very excited to do this. This might be the only time they get to see this group of friends in a year, twice a year. Um, you know, for the, for the people who love tournaments, you know, we, I mean, like I, I, even though I'm overweight and 40, I train with a personal trainer and I have to say a lot of it has to do with trying to be somewhat tournament ready. Um, even, even at my age, which I probably have no business with it anymore, but, um, you know, people really do feel passionate about these things. So, you know, the main thing is try not to get too upset. If you are thinking about how you want to run things, what your goals are, how you're trying to accomplish those goals, when you receive feedback, when you receive criticism, you can try to make sure that that person feels heard, feels like their opinion is valued, and it doesn't mean you have to do what they say. Right. It means that you need to, to treat them with respect when you're listening to them and tell them, you know, well, we may not be able to change it, 
But it is really important that you said that, and we're going to definitely take a look, keep it in mind, and think about it, because it is important. And, you know, sometimes people will ask me to do stuff that's just downright impossible for me. And I try to, as politely as possible, maybe explain, ah, that's probably not going to work for us because of our, our situation, but it's a good idea. Maybe it would work for other events. Um, or if I think that it might be a waste of time, I'd just say, that's a really good idea, I'll look into it. Okay, maybe that time I'm, you know, just being positive and walking away to try to get to the work I need to do. But, sure. um, but yeah, but I think that, you know, it's important to remember most people are trying to, you know, just vent or be helpful even. Um, there are malcontents who are not trying to do those things. And I've had people say things to me that are extremely abusive. Oh, and it's too bad because I made it a New Year's resolution about three years ago that the next person who said, like, um, you're the worst person ever, you don't deserve your titles, blah, 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 you know, any kind of negative, something that was, you know, personal and negative. Not, not criticism. Criticism right. is a different thing. Yeah. But if it was something like that, I was like, I was going to just really let them have it. And you know what, I think unfortunately they, they probably just look at me now and they must know she's just waiting for somebody to say <laughs> something. Because <laughs> nobody's done it and I'm like, drat. It just all stopped once I made the decision in my head that they were going to get an earful right back. And it just, and so I never got my, my chance to Maybe change really educate people is the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Well, before we finish here, I did want to ask you one thing. We were talking about growing an event from small to large. Let's say out there is somebody who is having a great time with this. They've just started an event and they want it to get bigger and bigger and bigger and, and more and more successful and draw people from all over the country. I know people who are here from all the way across, people who came from Dirt Marion, where I spent some time and I made some friends. I'm like, hey, what are you doing here? And they're here because, you know, uh, this is an amazing event in Southern California in the winter. There's a lot of good going on there. But, Somebody who's trying to grow what they've got going on to be that successful, what do they need to know? Every attendee that you get is won over with simple, kind acts. And if you can help people feel welcomed into this space, your event will keep growing. And everyone will have a good time. Even, even if you're not growing and it just ends up being something like a friend and family reunion, you're all going to have a good time. And those positive acts, those acts of kindness that you put out to the community that is there, it spreads and it bounces off all of the attendees and they share these things with each other and it becomes this amazing positive vibe. You need to get people to run the event with you that share that philosophy of kindness, that understand the importance of those small interactions and being kind. Kind if you have to fail a weapon, kind if you have to tell someone to move their parked car or their tent kind if they're goofing off and, and you need them to, to settle down, kind when you're breaking up fights. You've got to try to have that um, so that we have that community connection. Because sadly, if all the good stuff bounces around and creates the atmosphere, atmosphere of the event, the bad stuff does the same too. And it can make it a real stink fest and, and nobody's going to want to be there. And it's also true for your events, for your realms, for your events, for, for everything. I love it. Fantastic advice for anybody who's looking to, to grow an event and have it be successful or just fun. Yeah. Fun awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sir Anastasia. Anastasia? Anastasia. Anna, it's okay. Anna, right? <laughs> 
But thank you for coming on. This was really intriguing. I've greatly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Here with me now is a, a dear friend of mine who I've known for, I think, ever at this point. Uh, Sarka, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Malark. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. I know I've been wanting to have you on for a while. I think I had uh, said that I was going to do an interview around this time last year and then, you know, wandered off because I'm, I'm I, I, if it's not in a book, I don't remember it. And so this year I saw you at Battle for the Ring and it was like, we're doing this. We have to do this. I'm really glad you did. I had completely forgotten because I also don't remember something if it's not in a book. And I write down everything these days. I just have journals with me all the time. Which is the way to go if you want to remember anything. So we're on the ball now and we're here to do stuff. But before we really jump into this, uh, why don't you tell the listeners your Belagarth pedigree? Uh, do you mean pedigree in the literal sense? I, I come by Belagarth from my family. My older sister, my brother-in-law... My older brother were all part of Belagarth for years before I got involved. They founded the realm of Babylon in Bend, Oregon, which is my realm now. And then my older sister and her husband went on to found Gondor up in Seattle, Andor down in San Diego. And then I don't remember which realm they were part of in Illinois. That's, that's too far back for my brain. Um, they moved to Arizona and decided they were done founding Belagarth Realms and focused on their careers. And then I joined in 2010. Oh no, it's been, it's going to be 13 years this July. How has that happened? <laughs> yeah. It goes by quick, I, doesn't it? It really does. I, I was a very sad 19-year-old and I came to my first chaos wars to see my older sister and feel better about myself. And I was hooked. It, there's so much community. The fighting field is so exciting. Firing arrows for the first time. And, um, also the camp cooking. I really loved the camp cooking. Um, I didn't make a very good field fighter. I don't think anyone does initially, but I took it very personally that I wasn't immediately good at it. <laughs> Sure. Um, but I, I was quite good at cooking and chatting with people. And that really became my, I think, the Belagarth legacy that I'm known best for, which is uh, my own kitchen, my Sarkis kitchen, which is a camp, really just a collection of pavilions and stoves, coolers, and a blackout tent to keep all of my produce cold. But uh, in experience, it's a home away from home for many of us. Come get home-cooked food, have a quiet place to sit, go spar in my little sparring pit, play board games with my partner, Keelik, go pet my dogs for those who enjoy dogs. And it's like um, I get more friends visiting my house and Belagarth events than I do vis visiting my house in Bend. <laughs> these days I and then I joined the board I joined the board during COVID oh that was that must have been wonderful it was 
it was so much fun. It was about as much fun since uh, the root canal I had when I was a teenager. <laughs> we had we had a pandemic. We had a bunch of fighters just chomping at the bit to go and fight. And by that point in my career, I was one of the fighters really wanting to fight, but also not wanting to spread the disease. So it was a very chaotic year. Um, and then we had the Black Lives Matter movement, and that had some influence on our community as well. Many of my dear friends here in Oregon ended up uh, up in the riots with the police. And that was very heart-wrenching, especially from an administrative pers perspective. We really wanted to make sure our friends were safe and well-supported. And then... Well, it's like any volunteering position. You're you're doing too much. You're overseeing. You're not doing enough. You're inactive. You clearly don't care. Um, and then there's the wonderful people who drop into your DMs just to tell you that they love you and they appreciate everything you've done. And those are the people you keep coming back for. Sure. Well, in reality, I came back for all of them, even the really irritating ones because I don't pick and choose the humans that make up my world. I can only choose what I do with it, and that is support whatever I believe needs and deserves my support, which is valid. Sure. No, I, and I agree. I, I have a devotion to this community as well, so I, I certainly understand your passion. But you had mentioned this this kitchen, this community that you have created out of a fundamentally human activity, which is eating together. And from everything that we've been studying in all the books that we've read, eating is important um, as a general rule. Armies march on their stomachs. So how do you, I mean, there's obviously a difference, obvious difference between you providing this, this food, this excellent food for people to eat. And by the way, I'm always a part of Sarka's meal plan if she's at the same event that I am. For, for everybody's FYI, like that's that's a thing. But um, it's obviously different than like my, you know when I used to go to events, I'd be like, all right, I got Cheez-Its, I got beef jerky, and I've got something sweet, probably terrible for me, like some sort of gummy bears or whatever, and then some water. I'm good to go. Your menu is different. Um. My menu exists exactly because of what you just described. I've got Cheez-Its, beef jerky, and something sweet. Um, so when I found my partner back in 2012, he ate at events by sticking a ravioli can into the fire um, and having a pair of tongs to pull the can out of the fire when it was the, so the metal wouldn't burn him. And then he would eat it holding the can in the tongs and with a his little utility knife fork. And while I appreciated his ingenuity, I was not going to do that. I, <laughs> I come from a family. I once described us in a, in a uh, family science class, which is goes in my educational nerd background. I was a major in human development and family sciences. And in one of my family science classes, I described my family as we were all bitter rivals. We're competing academically. We're competing for power within the household. And we are 
challenging each other all the time. Lots of big personalities in not very big of a space. And um, we always apologized with food whenever something went too far, like um, a cup of tea, say that I'm sorry that I uh, misbehaved this morning, uh, fresh cookies on someone's birthday, you had a bad day at work, mom would make you your favorite dinner. And thankfully, we're not as competitive now. We're much better at communicating. But we we fight with words and we love each other with food. And so there's always cooking and always food in my life. And I would go to Bella Garth events with a giant Tupperware the size of my torso full of chocolate chip cookies and try to make friends. Um, I would make people sandwiches when they showed up with a half box of granola bars at a Western Wars Zulu. <laughs> um, I would make pasta in my camp and feed people the leftovers and one year my uh, beloved Keelik asked me if I would mind cooking for a couple of other fighters at a western course I said oh sure I'm happy to do that and he came back a week later and he said okay you've got 10 people on your meal plan and I said, my what? Uh, okay. Okay. I, I'm not going to cook that on a Coleman two burner. I need to go get my parents' camp stove out of the RV. Um, and that was my first circus kitchen. One pavilion, one camp stove, and two coolers. One of which didn't have hinges on the lid anymore. Um, because it had doubled as a chair for too many years of its life. Um, we made grilled sandwiches and pancakes. Um, and on one very rainy day, I ended up feeding, I think, 25 people French toast that I, I didn't, that was impromptu, but it, it really showed me that, uh, just like at home, everyone would come together around the dinner table and the conversations were amazing. And the, the camaraderie was real and people came to help me clean up my dishes came to chat with me while I cooked it felt like the best moments of my childhood brought out into the woods in our little sword fighting tent city um, it's only gotten bigger from there there's so there's up to four stoves now um, and that's for those of you who care uh, almost 200,000 BTUs of heat. And uh, I have used them all at once before. <laughs> I believe it. Again, I've seen the crowds you draw. 45 is too many. That is that is my lesson from Western Wars 2015. 45 is too many. What, what's the, just out of curiosity at this point, what is your usual max now that you've learned that 45 was too many? I try to sit around 35. 35 is a pretty cozy number. 25 is really relaxing. Uh, 25, I can keep the whole list in my head. Um, and uh, 40 is doable if I have a solid dish group. But, uh, and some help for prep. But 35 is the classic Max Kitchen. Well, that's not a bad number either. That's, 
you know, that's uh, enough to make good conversation, as you say, but it's not overly crowded, especially since it's usually an open tent city when you're not dealing with the limited space caused by torrential rain coming down and not just ruining the air, but also the grounds. Everybody's standing around like, like flamingos on a little like dry patch. I know I was, I'm sitting there just, I was over by the water cooler, just like crane stance, just like I, this is the one spot that I could not get wet in. It's right here. Um, after we left the camp that night of the torrential rain, I, I walked back to grab my keys off the table and I found Vanson and his two buddies from Eriduoth. And they, I walked over and I was like, hey guys. And Vanson looked at me and said, like, oh, hi Sarka. Um, can we just, it's real wet out there. And I said, Vanson, we're packing up for the night. If you want to use my camp, like the power box won't work right now, but it has, because it's wet, but, and the stoves won't work because they're too wet, but you can use my tables. You can use my chairs. You can sit under my pavilions. Yeah, it was, man, that was wet. But there's got to be some challenges. Um, much like, you know, back in the way when, again, you're not dealing with feeding tens of thousands of troops. But comparatively speaking, there's still, like, 35 is still a lot for one person to kind of keep up with. So what, what are the u unique challenges that you face trying to make sure that this army is well fed? Unique challenges of the kitchen is an interesting one. I was telling one of my siblings earlier today that I have to tell every food vendor that at every event that I am not competition. Uh, I'm here to feed um, the people who've paid me to buy the groceries and I'm not here to sell food. Although I did have one vendor that was very rude about it and I did somewhat spitefully give away a lot of free food at that event, which might have been petty, but I can't feel bad when somebody has a fresh plate and a place to sit down. And we're all human. We all, and, and if your pettiness results in somebody being fed, I think the world can take that pettiness. It's nice of you to say, and I hope it's, I hope it's true. There's also, I, if I'm really honest, the kitchen is hardest on the feet. It's a lot of standing. It's a lot of walking. It's a lot of hauling. And usually by the last day of the event, uh, the bones in my feet feel as though I have walked um, miles rather than stood in my camp for most of the event. Um, and there's the, the fear of missing out. I, Even though I'm exhausted at the end of the day from cooking and cleaning and some wonderful, amazing conversations that both give and take spoons... I often run off into the nightlife as soon as the stoves are cooled <laughs> because I, there's going to be somebody playing music and I want to dance. There's going to be somebody by a fire with an empty camp chair and I'm going to ask them about their life. There's going to be some kind of volunteering that needs to be done. I don't, I am currently a stay at home parent in my IRL life. But I was never raised to be a house spouse. And I never wanted to be a house spouse. I wanted to be into my community. And that's true in Bellegarde as well as my IRL persona. Um, so I, 
I guess I fear the kitchen becoming uh, a, a trap instead of a home. And that makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of demands placed upon you, especially when you have, you know, 35 people who are who are counting on you three times a day to make sure that they're getting, you know, not just food, but nourishment. Again, the nice thing about having a kitchen like yours, mm -hmm. where there is well-prepared, tasty food, is that there's nutrition. Fighters are expending a lot of energy out there. You know, yes. and, and trying to survive off of Cheez-Its and beef jerky it's not quite what the body needs. The body needs food, and that's what something like your kitchen provides. So it's it's a much like a logistics uh, center of an army. It is incredibly vital, and incredibly even if it's kind of behind the scenes in terms of the fighting, crucial to the successful fighting. But we're not actually back in those times again. Kitchen duty, you know, back during the time of the Roman. Uh, wars with Carthage or during World War II or something, kitchen detail was awesome because it meant that you were away from the fighting because you didn't want to be near the fighting. But in something like this, where the fighting is actually fun and, yes. you know, relatively deathless, uh, you know, the, the desire <laughs> is to be there and doing the mm -hmm. thing. So, yeah, that FOMO that you had talked about, is it's a real thing, yeah. It is. Um, I, at Battle for the Ring, Keelik is always very quick to reserve our RV site so that even if I can't get to the field, I can see the field. And it also makes our kitchen a natural stop for a lot of our friends. You're out on the fighting field and they think, oh, I could just skip one fight and get fresh water, but I have to go all the way back to my camp. And then they turn and they see my, ta my tower of pavilions and they think, oh, I could go to Sarka's camp. Sarka has water and I my friends appear all day and that's something that's a, a little thing that I greatly appreciate about Keelik and someday I will forgive him for springing a meal plan upon me 10 years ago and telling me that I was running you know as panicking as that must have been at the time I'm I'm kind of glad that he did because again I if your kitchen is at a place I always want to go there. There's there's vendors in the east who are staples. I'm not going to name names because I I don't want to throw shade, but they're they're staples of the community. People often use them as a quasi meal plan, but they you go in like the food is really greasy or or like it's just super heavy on the stomach and that's mm -hmm. I don't know, that's not what I want. As a fighter, I'm also not a person like I can't really eat and then go on the field with a rare exception of, of Thursday when I came and had my sandwich and then went back on the field because I'm pretty sure that sandwich had already vaporized by the time it hit my stomach. <laughs> I know, again, the proximity is huge. And that's something you would have seen back in the, in, you know, the ancient times, too. You'd want the kitchen as close as possible to the fighting without, you know, being directly in the fighting because soldiers get hungry and eating is again something that's that's somewhat necessary um but you had talked about you know kind of storing the food and making sure that it was you know able to be accessed but when you're dealing with 35 people 35 people who are eating there is that just you doing that or are you enlisting aid with this as well they i'm always i'm always lucky to have help I, it, that help comes in different forms. Of course, my partner is always happy to drop everything and go 
fish things out of the cooler or move bins of food for me in our, our blackout tent. I, I just want to take a moment and stress that anybody who needs to store food at an event where it's going to be hot, blackout tent will save you ice and time and it will keep your pears and other outside fruit from going rotten in your tent. Hmm. It's wonderful to have. But for many years, I cooked with a variety of friends who were very close individuals to me and wherever they came to events with me, their participation was comped. I never charged them for anything. And for one reason or another, all of my friends who were served that, filled that role for me have left over the course of the last decade for health or personal reasons or just a lack of, not a lack of interest in Bellegarth, but a surplus of other hobbies. You sure? So the kitchen is currently being reinvented and this the current model that exists is one that Keelik devised where everybody who initially signs up for, uh, they get the early sign up, which is a little less expensive, but with the early sign up, they also agree to do two shifts, one of cooking and one of dishes. Um, and Keelik always does extra dish shifts with the goal that I, his goal is that I will never do dishes again in my kitchen because he spent many years waiting for me to come and join him in the nightlife and coming back to the camp to find that I had fallen asleep in the grass next to my dish tubs. Oh. Uh, thinking I was just going to rest for a moment and suddenly it's midnight and there's moth on my head. That's famous uh, last words, by the way. I'll just shut my eyes for just a minute. Those are famous last words. <laughs> I... I never shut my eyes in the kitchen anymore. I know better now. Who knows if I'd done it at Bifture, I might have drowned. Yeah, good lord. <laughs> so, the kitchen has always existed, not just with me, but with the community supporting me. As helping hands, or as the wonderful people who uh, make me eat my own food. Um the people who refill my water bottle. Um, and now most recently in the form of my young son who runs into the kitchen and just grabs my legs and reminds me to take a moment and just soak in all the wonderful things that are happening around me. It's not just a series of tasks that need to be done to give people food. It's also the joy of looking up and saying, oh, that's Hakan. I love Hakan. And he's come way too early for lunch just to enjoy the shade and the conversation. Um, there's Keelik walking the dogs. Oh, Doku just slipped on the fighting field. I hope he's okay. All the, all the good stuff. Uh, all the unintended perks. You know, because I've known a lot of people who do kitchens, and they come and go. A lot of times folks burn out uh, doing it, because it, it is a lot of work. You know, it, yeah. even just making one meal for one person can be a lot of work, let alone making 35 persons, not just not just a meal, but a filling meal. You know, that, that does take effort. It does. Um, it, a lot of it is 
not diminished, but lessened by planning on the forefront. My mother forced me practically at knife point to learn about the Oregon Trail because she loves the Oregon Trail. And my mother knows a lot about chuck wagons and a lot of the inspiration from, for the kitchen's meals come from chuck wagons and what people would do to try and keep their families fed, not just with the calories they needed to make the journey, but also with the nutrients they needed to still be healthy at the end of the journey, which is how a lot of the meal planning comes about. You come out with a template. You need 12 meals for this event. This is Battle for the Ring. You need so many breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. How am I going to get a starch, a fat, um, and produce into each meal? Um, what's going to be my, my fat for my vegetarians as opposed to the, my people who eat meat. And I internally think of everyone in my meal plan as like my vegetarians, my people who can't eat gluten. Um, because these are my people. I am your real mom for the course of this event. And you will eat your vegetables, even if you don't want to. I had one very event, a uh, very fun event where somebody was making bad choices. Hmm. I shouldn't say they're bad choices. They're not choices I would make. <laughs> I don't want to impose that judgment on them. And they told me that they were just going to drink and eat sandwiches at lunchtime so that they would be perpetually drunk from the beginning of the event to the end. I, I did at one point sit them down and make them eat an apple and drink some water and decide wasn't it so much more fun to be sober with vitamins in their system you know i understand the the impulse to not judge but i think it's fair to say that those are bad decisions um if if only from a liver disease perspective i think you made the right call there bell mom oh thanks I don't know if my friend feels the same way. Well, I should hope so, especially if they still have their stomach lining. It's, uh, it's, it's always a perk. It is necessary. No, I don't think I could do it. You know, it's you have a unique talent for, you know, I'm sure there's an organization that goes into it. Oh, hello there, little one. Not even ice cream. Wow, you do have ice cream. And that's Sir, Ke Sir Keelik in the background there, uh, y'all. Uh, you'll we'll call him from uh, a previous episode. Mm -hmm. Hi. But uh, but yeah, there's there's a huge level of organization, and not just organization, but 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 the the planning that goes ahead of it, and the execution, like because as we we know, every plan fails. The second it meets the enemy, it's going to fail. I'm sure yeah. the kitchen is no different. So making sure that you have those contingencies, being able to say, okay, I've got this covered. I'm yes. sure that that comes with experience too. Again, you're like, it was kind of foisted on you to begin with, but I imagine simply because of the uh, improvisation that you had to do at the beginning that you've kind of learned to roll with the punches on that one. I, I have reasonably well. It really helps to have a partner who's very... Uh, problem-solving oriented and very good at planning himself 
Yes, I'm complimenting you. I'm sorry. Um, and it also helps to have lost a lot. Um, all those meal plans where we lost money, where uh, we had to make, leave site to go to the grocery store. I didn't get my driver's license until recently for reasons that are not worth going into anxiety, basically. And I always had to find somebody who's willing to leave sight with me. And typically I didn't want it to be Keelik because he's got to be in charge of all of our gear and um, spend a lot of time off site. And people asked me why I would say, well, my cooler failed and I need twice as much ice as I expected. Or I forgot the milk. Can't make pancakes without milk. Yeah, that's kind of hard. Yeah. And, and uh, what is it? Failure is the greatest teacher. Yes. I've had many great teachers. <laughs> I, I feel similarly, though not from, for the same reason. Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, I have to respect it. It's another one of those talents that I look at and say, you know, that's amazing. I'm so glad somebody has it because that means the rest of us can benefit from it. But I'm also so glad it's not me because... Because you do look happy, like you're there and you're and you're you're doing your thing and you're like interacting with people and you're in charge of the space and you look in your element. You look as though you're enjoying yourself a good portion of the time. I would not look right. like that. I would be your t very typical, like typical fry cook in the army, just mad about life, uh, not making good food because I I didn't have my heart in it. Yeah. That's just not my talent. Um, there is an episode of MASH where Hawkeye Pierce gets put in charge of the kitchen and he's convinced he can do it better than the army cook. And it is spectacularly bad. And I, I enjoyed it greatly. But what you're describing, that's the way I feel about surgeons. Mm. Um, and their and doctors and their ability to repair people because I, I don't know if this is just me being squeamish or me being a natural caretaker. When somebody is bleeding, I am not happy. Sure. Um, and I'm not in my element. You know, night one of battle for the ring. Do you want do you want the bowl or the printer? You can have one or the other, but two together is very noisy first night of battle for the ring i ran into char his steel uh wine glass had broken and he cut himself and everything stopped i was like we're going to my camp i have antiseptic and a band-aid because ace was about to put hand sanitizer on the cut just to make sure it was clean and uh i was like no <laughs> don't make me get Helix medic sash which I'm grateful that Helix can do the major medic things I can do the band-aids if somebody's like busted their nose open oh Ace did that in my kitchen too oh. um, I that was not this event that was a previous bifter and we were like your nose has five minutes to stop bleeding before we take you to the hospital I, I, I figure I could probably let you go to to deal with your 
your your adorable warrior over there. Um, we are we are a little out of time here, but I I honestly oh. could talk about this for longer because I'm not just enjoying the conversation with you, but uh, listeners will also know that I am a huge nerd for logistics. So this this stuff right here is the foundation of wh what we're able to do. It's kind of like when we talk to event planners. Uh, and, and volunteers like that. Yeah, the fighting field is awesome and we all want to be out there, but so much goes into the logistics to make that actually happen. You know, 90% of military activity is support for mm -hmm. for the, the fighting. So again, your service is appreciated 110%. Thank you. And I appreciate you running this podcast and letting us all be nerds with a fellow nerd who's really fun to talk to. Oh, you're too kind but uh yeah thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me it's been fun i'm always happy to geek out about logistics as well and uh cooking and my wonderful community my big family my little family that invaded at the last few minutes <laughs> it's a good time <laughs> oh it is and uh yeah, I look I look forward to the next time I get to see you. At the moment, I am sitting here with Turtle and with Melon. Fellas, I appreciate you all very much for being on the show. Thank you. Of course, my wife. Uh, I am Turtle. And I am Melon. And now you know which voices are going to be which. Uh, so guys, let's let's talk for a little bit about your, before we get into it, your fighting pedigree. Like, uh, where did you, when did you guys start fighting? What have you kind of done with your fighting careers, like in terms of like where you may have been and what, what you like most about, like your styles or whatever. Mm -hmm. Just a short little bio, perhaps. Uh, well, I started off uh, first in high school uh, with the gladiators program at my high school which is done by Mark uh, as for terms of like fighting styles for the first like two years I was a very mix-and-go person I tried a bunch of different styles most of which wouldn't have worked in a professional field but I tried them anyways and then slowly one day just kind of clicked for me and I, I figured out what my style would was, which was min red dueling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, that, like uh, I continued it for the rest of my high school, and I just continued to grow as a person. Word. Um, I guess my fighting career started back in middle school for me through the uh, flagship program, after school program type of thing. Uh, went in my f sixth grade year of middle school and got taught by someone named Oni, um, who, um, you know, said he'd keep an eye on me and keep me in loops so I could meet people on a bigger field one day. Well, as time went on, he and I kept talking and he said, hey, there's a park here, meet up with these guys here, and then uh, that's about 14, I started fighting with Malark and Thumbs and a couple other people um, and then I also got into the Gladiator program around that time as well um, I started out 
just doing single blue mainly because I couldn't really do much. I was tiny. Um, but over time, I went from single blue to uh, Florentine to now I do like a sword and board with an extra sword or I'll do Florentine with a strap shield. And and you guys have only been Stygians, right? Or uh, and also gladiators, um, and not lived anywhere else. Either you've been snatched up by units yet? Nope. Just um, Stygian gladiators. Just Stygian. I know. Um, I am a, a page for House Thumbly right now, so that's something that's new and cool. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Well, um, I believe. In fact, I'm sure. But this is the first time y'all have made it to an event. And mm -hmm. some of the previous interviews, I'm not quite sure which order we're going to be doing these in, but at this point, to give everybody an update, we have quit the field. As it were, uh, the field got soggy and lake-like, and so we have decided Marsh. to come. <laughs> Absolutely. And so we decided to go to a hotel and, and be dry and warm for at least one night before we go back to it. Was this what you guys planned on for your first event? Uh, for me, I, I'd planned for the worst case scenario. Uh, my tent, all of my equipment is all safely stored away, still at site. Uh, I'm just here for sake of convenience and uh, keeping myself safe. But I, I would say I, I came here knowing that it'd be raining, but not quite this hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I thought I was prepared. <laughs> my tent had some damage to the rain fly so there was a couple nights where I woke up to some condensation and raindrops on my face so that wasn't great I woke up at 5 in the morning for the past two days and then somehow got back to bed and woke back up to the same thing um, and then it started pouring rain today and I was like well I have waterproof shoes I'll just throw on my rain jacket and I'll be fine. No, my rain jacket was old and likes to soak in water more than it likes to keep it out. So, spent most of today soaked. But, um, we were able to fight yesterday, which I did a little too much of, but it was, it was worth it. I got to learn, um, fought for about seven or eight hours, um, a whole bunch of people I met, um... Got to learn a bunch from fighting with and against them. It was it was so much fun. I got to learn a lot. So that's something I was really anticipating is just learning from these people that I know nothing of, um, who somehow know a lot of me already. Uh, especially what Brotherhood, I think Tethian's unit. Brotherhood guys. Yeah, they they all know of me already, and that was kind of scary. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. Uh, it was it was cool it was awesome it was a great learning experience and I want to go to more now I'm greedy well, I saw both of you out there getting some of that field yesterday when it was still light and tasty and I I think we all enjoyed ourselves very much oh very much, very much. <laughs> there was a point in time in which I was going onto the field with nothing but two rocks and a strap shield on my arm and every like I got a couple of people walked up to me and like no weapon nope I'm just rock throwing and they were completely fine with that, and we went on our merry way. Yep. No, I, I uh, attended the Chaos Wars with much the same, just a, a smaller strap shield and a bag of rocks, and 
an attitude, which you didn't come with, which is probably a good thing. But uh, but no, I, I, I imagine that a lot of people are, it, it's good, the healthy, uh, it's a good healthy attitude that you guys are showing about this because it'd be easy to be sour about the way this went down. It'd be easy to be uh, focusing on the negatives. But what I'm hearing here, you guys are like, you know what? Yeah, it's soggy outside for sure. But yesterday was awesome. And yeah, I, it, was, it was full of good fruit for you. In that one day of fighting, I got so much experience because uh, I'd always heard that the national field was so much like better, more refined, and the people you got there, like everyone there has a passion for this. And they are already mastering their own styles. And so it was very engaging to fight someone who knew what they wanted to do and how they were going to do it. And it brought a whole new spark to being able to fight. Sure, sure. Um, one of my weakest fighting styles right now is actually just 32-inch or 34-inch blade with a sword and board. Um, and like a pretty sizable heater. Um, and that's one of my weakest fighting styles right now. And I'm trying to get better so I can do a better sword board and team. Um, but I got to do some night fights with like eight different people. Who all in the beginning were just absolutely whooping me and I was able to see like okay I'm leaving my shoulder open here I'm leaving my elbow open here you know bring myself back and instead of lasting like three to five seconds it was like 20 to 30 seconds where we were exchanging blows because I actually was able to learn how they were fighting sword and board and use that as well so that's something I found cool is that like there were specific groups fighting at certain times with certain weapons and I could learn from what they were doing now, do you think that the, you know, the four-plus years of training that you guys did when you were in, like, high school and middle school, was that, was that did that make it easier to pick up whatever people were doing and, and yes. accelerate that learning process? Absolutely. It was, uh, I'd say the first two years was really what happened. Uh, after those two years, I found my spark, my, my way of fighting, to put it, and I, I learned to grow and enjoy that fighting style and get better at it and start analyzing it. And coming here to this national field, I can see other people who also have that spark and are looking for ways to better themselves. And when I'm fighting with someone like that, it only enhances that experience and makes me learn more. Yeah, um, I would say the however long I've been doing this, years of experience, um, four with gladiators and then the for with Stygia have definitely made this coming to this event a lot easier on me I guess would be the best way to say it it's like I know what to expect for the most part um, it's just from there it's my comprehension of how I see the field and how I take the information well because there's only so much the yeah. veterans can tell you there's only so much that we can actually prepare you for when it comes to the national field like I can tell you you know forever oh the national field is a little bit tougher oh you got to bring a little bit more to it but the only thing that actually will tell you that is being on the national field it's only when you're on the national field that you get to see someone rush with a full large shield and then have them as they're running towards someone else, that person standing there, rush straight back at them and knock each other's to the ground. What? I can't. We're recording, what's up? 
he kept whispering something at me, and I didn't know what was happening. Same so podcast. Yes. Okay. Now I know. We'll be back in a few minutes. Okay. Yes. Sorry. It's all right. Thank you. Love you guys. They didn't say it back. He says. All right. Sorry. Where were we? Uh. Yeah. Uh. So. It's really like at the national field, like you can always say, like it, it's a lot tougher. Uh, people are super intense there, but it's not until like once when I was actually on the field when I saw someone bull rush someone else with a shield, and that person seeing them getting bull rushed and they bull rush straight back and just collide and knocked each other to the ground. <laughs> There's an aggression out here for sure. There, it was really cool to see, like just. I mean, I noticed this a bit myself. I was communicating with people I've never met with previously. I didn't even know their fighting names until I fought with them three times. I was like, hey, you want to team up with me? I see you, I see a spearman, I see an archer. Let's all group up, flank on the left or flank on the right. You know, get some pressure around their sides and really burn this candle. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. Um... And it was just really cool that I could just kind of talk to people, and they were like, they were willing to I don't know they're willing to fight. It's it's similar to being in a realm. It's like you know the person, but it's also so different. Like you learn the communication skills from talking to your realm and all that. When you go to these events, it's like it's a little awkward at first, but then you learn that's they're just another person fighting. And they're there for the same reason that you are, so there's no reason to be worried. I I didn't ever worry about who my teammates were or if they were trustworthy or if they were capable because regardless of that, they were at my side, so I fought with them. It is interesting being out there with people that you don't know implicitly because that's something that within the gladiators, you know, you get used to people's fighting styles. And so you match up against them and you're like, okay, I know they're capable of this. These are the things to watch out for and kind of how to counter one another. Mm-hmm. Um, you can even do that at the realm level. You just sit there, and even if Turkey Feathers is amazing, which he is, you know, eventually you can start to learn to um, get around it. You know, find, find some way to compensate and kind of anticipate what he's going to do. There were how many people on that field? Many? A hundred. Many at of least. whom do not have similar styles to anything that you've been exposed to because Stygia does have its own kind of style Um, what kind of shock does that deliver and I I know that you had said that there was a a huge amount of learning that took place what do you think the the kind of best of that was what did you take away from this experience Um, I would say what I got from the experience of all that was um, like it's it's always cool to see what someone has learned for a unique aspect of their fighting style like per se my version of sword and board and teen is you know i have a small 32 inch bat a 40 inch bat and a large heater and i walk with that on the field and if i need to drop it i do um but there were some other people who would use a smaller circular shield and two sticks or they would have a strap shield and two sticks um and they were able to find a way that would like work for them or you know different spear fighters with different types of um sidearms meaning uh, daggers or smaller bats or swords 
Um, like, it was cool to see how aggressive or defensive um, or supportive they were just, like, based off of the fighting styles that they learned in their realm at their time. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that I was really happy to see. Yeah, uh, like, for myself, like, when I went onto the battlefield, there were so many different people. I just started going to different places, just trying to see everyone and their skill levels respective to my own. And there were definitely people on the battlefield who were just so phenomenal in their fighting styles and their technique. I Like, they clearly, clearly demonstrated it. They've done this thousands of times before. And there were some folks out there who would just throw the shame the same shot perfectly every single time and landed at the exact same position despite every variable that you could think of being slightly different or skewed it didn't matter because they could auto correct to the same spot perfectly and i also saw things that i never saw before i saw a great hammer and it and was was off the it was, yeah, was beautiful <laughs> and amazing. He compliment he complimented me for having a rock, or having my rock that I threw at him being straight on, perfect centered, and that he was forced to block it, which is the only reason why he didn't kill me immediately. But he did still get my leg with a beautiful leg swipe and left me to his teammates. Mm. But it it's just it's so fantastic seeing everyone's fighting style and just how good people could get now it is always interesting and of course uh different regions have different fighting styles and it all comes into one big melting pot where it really kind of tests your strengths in a way that uh home fighting doesn't as much i think did either of you do anything with the tournaments this time around personally i i did not uh, that's just because I enjoyed the larger scaled battles rather than tournament fighting. Sure. Um, I didn't this time. Um, I As similar to Turtle, um, I wanted to kind of experience the large field fighting because that's what I really enjoy. I was able to really hone in on my floater personality and kind of go from one side to the other. Um, but it was just... it was. Yeah, it was... I heard about all the events. There's still one or two I might try and do. Um, or the tourneys. Um, but, you know, we'll see if it's if it's good weather tomorrow for that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, but, yeah, so... Not this time, but definitely in the future, I'm going to look for different tourneys and different things I can enter, so... Sure. Well, before we break here for a second, I want to ask you both... Is there any advice that you would offer to somebody who might be budding in a new realm or just learning the ropes to this but hasn't necessarily taken that step to going to a national event or stepping onto a national field? What words of encouragement or advice would you offer to these people? Uh, I would say it's always going to be fun if you go with the mindset of I'm going to enjoy this. Like here, it's a several day event, and so far I've only gotten to fight one day of it because the weather has been ill otherwise, but I've still enjoyed every moment of like, that fighting was the best fighting I've had in my entire career, and I still think it was worth it even if it was just for that one day. However, I would say plan for circumstances that would not be optimum to fighting. 
and also to make sure to plan out and bring everything that you need. Sure. Um, I would just say, um, if you can't make this one, you can always make another. Or, you know, like, definitely take your time. If you need to take your time on, you know, go to your realms, still fight with them. If you can't make an event, they'll understand. They'll definitely be sad, because they probably enjoy fighting with you. Um, but, you know, just take your time with it. Um, but go to everyone that you can. Because um, it is definitely still a learning opportunity. It's a social opportunity, and it's it's definitely it's basically life changing for your whole entire career in this sport. I it took me four years to get to my first event, and mm-hmm. I don't think it'll be a, an occurrence that I think I can make every single one. But I am definitely looking forward to doing more in my future. Perfect. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate you both very much for coming. And uh, I know myself and the listeners look forward to seeing what you all do with your careers. So, thank you once again. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. (laughs) That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargaming.com podcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.